What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Are you ready? Welcome to another edition of the Bandwagon Podcast. And today I'm joined by none other than uh, Jess Phillips, MP for Birmingham Yardley. Um, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. It's nice to see you in a really relaxed environment. I'm, I'm in bed, Ricky. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh, let me just change the next few questions about what I'm going to address. I'm not actually in bed, but I'm just sat on my bed. It is the only place where I can get any peace in my house. <clears throat> is that in terms of like, obviously with the hustle and bustle of how you have to operate between... Uh, your house and parliament is this mm-hmm. is this kind of your place of sanctuary then yeah i mean normally actually i find the most the place i feel the most sanctuary is in my constituency office right. um but it's been a bit hard because people weren't able to come in but they've been able to come back in again in the last couple of weeks so i thought it best not to do it there because you'd be hearing people you know making complaints about their slabs or talking about their homeless application in the background and it's not necessarily <laughs> the best environment to do a podcast um but yeah I I, I don't know how I'm going to um get back to life going back to Westminster all the time because I just have grown like really into a homebody and I, I thought that I'd really miss London um and I went down uh, last week and the week before and I just was desperate to come home again straight away have you got your your you've got your pajamas and then you got your daytime pajamas is it have you got have you yeah 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 the amount of pajamas I have bought online during the pandemic I yeah you've got I've got like best pajamas uh and uh, and then like like dirty grubby old holy pajamas uh I've got more pajamas than I've ever owned in my life Yeah, I think we'll change the direction of this podcast very quickly. Otherwise, we're just going to talk about beds and stuff like that again. Um, in in terms of like when you you've mentioned going back to your office, mm-hmm. um, obviously with it with the pandemic pandemic in the end in sight at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the kind of current themes people are coming to you with? It's it's actually less the things that people are coming to me with that the things that they're not coming to me with that frightens me. So in an ordin in ordinary times, the biggest amount of casework that I handle falls into three categories. Um, and I mean, aside from all of the sort of pavement politics, your bins, your paving slabs, your parks and stuff, put that to to one side. The three major areas are homelessness. Uh, people being made homeless um, is and not having secure tenancy, having arrears, is the is the one of the biggest areas that I normally deal with. Um, immigration casework is another huge issue uh, in the constituency that I represent, um, and the third one is welfare benefits, uh, usually largely disability, but also some of the the challenges of universal credit. Um, and I am not dealing with any of those three things at anywhere near the rate that I used to deal with them. It's starting to trickle back in. But homelessness, for example, there's been an evictions ban um, for um, now nearly 18 months. It will be by the time we get to the end of the evictions ban. And so I'm not I'm not seeing court papers being filed against my constituents for arrears or people just moving, uh, you know, landlords just roughshodding over regulation uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, I'm not seeing hardly any of that going on. And that is terrifying for me because the, the idea that in July when that changes, it's going to be a tsunami, I think, of... Um, of homelessness in my constituency um lots more people living in hotels and things like that 
Um, and I'm really worried about that immigration because people can't really travel. <laughs> um, I've, you know, I've I've handled one really overzealous case uh, of uh, an Australian bloke who they were trying to deport completely wrongly, and I think it was just that they were bored at the airport. Genuinely, right. like I think that like, they've got nothing. There's about 18 people who've been through the airport, and they're like, right, let's just do this because that like. Whereas normally I am dealing with huge amounts of immigration casework um, and welfare benefits. There's been a massive increase in the number of people claiming universal credit in my constituency. And the sort of tribunals for disability benefits and things have um, had been either postponed or changed uh, during the pandemic. But that's just another thing that just seems to be building up to a, a bottleneck that is going to burst the bottle at some point. Um, but I, I'd say one of the biggest issues that we have faced during the pandemic and continues to be a massive problem is the issue around uh, exempt accommodation. Okay. So exempt accommodation is uh, essentially what we have a problem with in Birmingham and, and, and elsewhere, but it's a major problem in Birmingham, is landlords buying up properties and claiming to be providing them to vulnerable people um, and uh, offering supportive accommodation. And they are just ramping up the amount of people living in houses of multiple occupation who have varying needs of mental health disorders, substance misuse, victims of domestic abuse, care leavers, people with learning disabilities, all living in properties with almost no support while the state is paying loads of money. It's causing huge problems in our communities um, with antisocial behaviour. But for me, I'm really frightened about the amount of vulnerable people living in unsuitable accommodation. I mean, it's very clear that um, you're probably one of the most passionate uh, MPs that you you see around. Uh, um, well, obviously, you know, I, I know you in person, but, you know, online or in a digital space. From when you started out in politics, do you feel, did you have that sense of kind of this um, uh, view that everything that you were able to tackle, that you were able, you were able to achieve and... And you, you end up in this frustration as I can kind of clear coming coming to what yeah. you're saying. So like, how do you get that happy medium? I mean, it is really, really hard to not want to crusade and change the world. And everybody who goes into politics, bar about, I'm going to say around 10%, mm. do it for the right reasons. Do it because they believe, uh, whether they believe the, the route is the same as the one that I believe is uh, the accurate route, the, the outcome that people want is the same that you want to change the world um you know it makes you sound like miss world doesn't mm. it like what you know I just, want, I just want world peace um <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you very very quickly realize as you rise up the ranks whether that's in the council or working in commissioning or whatever you very very re- early on i think get a sense of the things that you can change that might work towards changing the bigger picture in the long run. Um, and, and you have to sort of try and focus your attention on them. But some, some days, you know, it, if you get a house for somebody who didn't have a house before, yeah. that can feel like world peace. Honestly, you have, to, you have to take the small wins. When someone brings you in a box of chocolates because their kid got into a school that you'd fought for them because their kid had autism and it hadn't been offered an appropriate school place, sometimes that feels the same to me as when I've changed the law. It is, you have to take the pleasure in just somebody trusting you with their secrets as much as you do like making sweeping changes. Because if you didn't do that, you would become disillusioned so very quickly. Because let's face it, you know, I'm an opposition politician and it looks, you know, I look set to be an opposition politician for quite some time. And so I, I have to skin the cat that I have. Mm. Um, and there's, you know, there's only really one way to do that, regardless of the saying. Um, and so I have to I have to focus on the things that I can change. Um, I mean, obviously, I get like mad and frustrated and scream and shout and mm. <laughs> it gets very, very tiring when you say the same thing over and over and over and over again. And then something terrible happens 
and everybody starts saying the thing you've been saying and you were like that. Oh, oh, saying my mother used to say, what am I, chopped liver? It's like, I've been saying this. I mean, could you not see me? I don't know why that's saying, what am I, chopped liver? What am I, chopped liver? Uh, mm. like, like a thing you should eat. Um, that is really frustrating, but you just have to, the people keep you going. Yeah, I mean, you you are filled in, um, in in Parliament with a lot of uh, interesting characters, so to, so to speak. So I'll, I'll get to those, those bits a little bit later on. Um, you you talked about your roots. Um, how what was your route and your pathway into becoming the you know, an MP? Um, well, I mean, aside from the fact that I was literally born with are deeply political. So my parents were political activists. Uh, my mum, before I was born and also while she was pregnant with me, she took on a massive campaign to sue um, the drug company ICI because they'd given my nan a drug that had essentially blinded her. And so, you know, I was raised by a woman who at the age of 24 who and had two children in a house in Bearwood had basically taken on the country's biggest drug company and won. Um, and so, you know, when you, you're brought up in that environment by people who tell you all the time that you can change the world if you try, if you bother to turn up and organise, that that is the initial route that it, it took for me to believe that, you know, to essentially have, I was about to say the confidence, but the real answer is the arrogance to think that you could uh, step up. Um, but but really the thing that made me want to get involved in um proper formalised politics and having power to change things was the time I spent working in the voluntary sector, either with uh, in Birmingham with asylum seekers and uh, young offenders, and then for years working uh, in the black country, working at Women's Aid, um, where I just saw how terrible decisions could could be made by governments around welfare or housing or funding that would literally damn a voiceless people and I just got really really cross and I thought I'm going to have to just keep on climbing up the ladder until somebody gives me a suitable amount of power uh, to, to do something about this so it really all comes from and people often ask me like what is your who is your political inspiration as if like I don't know like I had pictures of 1970s politicians on my wall I didn't <laughs> yeah exactly I'm just a normal human being I have Kurt Cobain um, <laughs> like like I did not and he has some questionable attitudes towards women um, but uh, everybody's so problematic now aren't they um I think, yeah. I think um, it's it's not very good it's not really a good idea to tell who you who your heroes are or to me I know because yeah they'll get, like, get cancelled all turn out to be total wrong-uns. Everybody turns out to be a total wrong-un in the end. There's literally no way of escaping it, it seems. Um, so, yeah, so, I, you know, but the people who genuinely inspired me were the the people who, you know, I worked for ages with, like, women refugees who'd come from Sierra Leone um, at the time of uh, the Civil War uh, there and in Rwanda. And these women were like, people think it's really depressing. They were a proper laugh most of the time. And the women in refuge were just like, they were so delightfully um, cynical and entertaining um, as well as, uh, you know, people think it's like a really sad story. And it's the same working in, in substance misuse and things like that. The characters you meet along the way are really, really, really inspiring. Um, and so it's always just those people, some of the, whom definitely would get cancelled if they were on a public stage. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, it's, I think it's interesting that you say that because I think uh, even now, it, it, um, looking back on some of my substance misuse, misuse career, I always have these kind of certain characters and, and I have those characters in my head to say, right, you know, what would yeah. this person do in this scenario? Because they... Yeah, yeah. They're just completely different, like wired differently in, in that in that way of thought and totally. the expertise is amazing. Oh well, the the thing is, the expertise amongst the women in refuge, they would never have made the mistakes that the government made around domestic abuse. They would never have made those mistakes because they weren't born yesterday, um, and we we don't recognise enough how. Uh, much service users in whatever service are the absolute experts it's like if you're a patient and you have a rare disease you probably know more about it than 99 percent of gps 
Um, and yet we all live within this hierarchy of people whose uh, whose opinions matter. Um, and that is, you know, I find that absolutely maddening. And so actually, whenever I make decisions, I've got like four or five service users in my head. And I think, oh, well, how would this help this person? Would this help? Or would it? Is, am I just saying it because it, you know, it's politically expedient? And I do that all the time. And don't get me wrong, I say some things that are just politically expedient. <laughs> Like all politicians do. Let's just be honest about that. Sometimes I say things because it's the politically expedient thing to say. Um, kind of on the on the same kind of theme of that. Um, every time when I've seen you on uh, on TV, for example, you, you know the, the domestic violence is is obviously mm. something that's very courty. <laughs> Jess Phillips' domestic violence it almost goes like beans on toast. Um, why? To, an, to the person that's on, you know, just an average person who's not interested in politics, mm-hmm. is domestic violence bill so hard to, how, how was the journey of it? And I don't even know where it's at at this point. It's just finished. It's yeah, just yeah, yeah. Finished. I, that's yeah. why. So I was like, yeah. why was that such a hard thing to that makes afraid. common sense to mm. 99% of the population in this country mm-hmm. in, in, through, 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 through parliament? The reason it was hard was because it was nobody's political priority. It was nobody's. You, you've got to remember that that it started in a time of, uh, well, actually a time before, but um, but it lived most of its life in a time of Brexit. Um, and every single opportunity for the domestic abuse bill to fall, it would fall because it was never, the lives of women are never, anybody's actual political priority that, that's not that's not fair to say of individuals so you know i don't think anyone could make that charge against me against harriet Harman, even against theresa may um you you would find it hard to make that argument against individuals but as a political class as a parliament as an institution the the lives of women don't matter uh, and so the, the, you hear this thing all the time. And now that I'm saying it to you, you're going to hear it all the time and it will start to really irritate you. Is this the latest it, buzzword? Well, it's not It's not even the latest thing. It's just a thing that people say in politics and it's just a platitude and it's a totally meaningless one. Is that the first line of defence of any government is the safety and security of its people. Now, people say that all the time and they only ever say it in terms of borders and armed forces, men in essentially men in uniform, whether that's police, soldiers, um, or border guards. That's it. the first line of defence of any net of any government is the safety and security of its people. Now, the single biggest crime type in the United Kingdom is domestic abuse. It, is, it accounts for a quarter of all call outs to the police, um, more than any other crime type, mm. um, and. No one ever, when they say the sing, you know, the the first line of any government is the first responsibility is the safety and security of its people. No one ever closes their eyes when they say that statement, whether it's Churchill or Boris Johnson, and thinks that the safety and security of women in their homes, on the streets, and in their workplaces is the thing that they're talking about. They just don't see it, and that is why the domestic abuse bill was so hard to get through because. If it had been a terrorism bill, it would have taken three months. If you were to look at the number of people who die at the hands of terrorists in our country, not, you know, horrendous. My own friend was killed by a terrorist. I'm not underplaying how important that is. But politically, it is so much more important because it brings with it political expediency. It brings with it the ability to create division and fear, which is a a way that people can control. Um, And it brings with it a sense of jingoism in a way that fighting for the nation's women doesn't. And that is just a fundamental fact, is that politics will never prioritise the lives of women because women just don't have as much political power. I mean, it's really powerful in some of the, what you've just said there. I've, I've got many different kind of angles that I'm trying to go through, but you would have thought that over the last 12 months, there was a, a growing number of evidence even yeah. more that there was <laughs> domestic violence was 
not just well perpetrators had more um Space to, uh, yeah, more space to operate and domestic mm-hmm. violence victims that they would have used that and actually seen it. So, right, actually, this is a it's moved up that political agenda a little bit. Yeah, where it, used it definitely to has. It definitely has moved up the political agenda. Um, and the killing of Sarah Everard, um, absolutely um, enabled it to move up the political agenda. But it will it will fall down without effort. Now, one thing I would say about the pandemic is that it gave everybody a universal experience Mm. and universality in politics is it's you couldn't you can't buy it. Like there's very few things that people experience universally, Um, even like making education good, like, you know, whether the vast majority of people have children, actually education policy doesn't matter to great swathes of the country, even though it is quite a populous uh, policy area. Um, and, and you think women, we are half the people, more than half, mm. you'd think that our stuff would be quite populist. Yeah, um, be, yeah. But actually, universal experiences are quite rare. It's why people love the NHS, because it's a universal service. And we can all talk about the NHS, um, because pretty much everybody uses it. And during lockdown, everybody had the universal experience of being locked in their homes and being a bit frightened. And, you know, for, uh, you know, a big for somebody who sticks up for victims of domestic violence, it was game changing because for the first time ever, people recognised their privilege and they were saying things like, you know, it's really hard and I miss my family, but at least when I'm at home, no one's beating me up. At least I'm safe. People started to recognise what it must be like to be terrified in your own home. And that I think is something that will last for a long time. But um, it's going to take a huge amount of work for people like me to keep the foot on the pedal of um, of keeping it on the political agenda, because it it will just it will just fall away like Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, it's a huge thing in the summer that, you know, you then the people who are involved in these sorts of equality struggles, it takes a huge amount of work to keep them up on the agenda. Um, but every time these things happen, I don't want to be, uh, I'm going to be hopeful about it. You bring a few more million people in the country with you. Mm. And, and actually, the more people in the country care about something, the more politicians will care about it. They're fundamentally trying to keep their jobs. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I will feel hopeful about what the pandemic has done to people's experiences of um, uh, of domestic abuse and, and their feelings about it have definitely improved. So in, in putting it in a direct kind of outcome, the bill goes through, what impact would you like to see happen? What would be the result of that? Well, the bill, I mean, I suppose that the bill has huge amounts of good things in it, but the, the impact I don't want it to have is that people think, oh, job done. Because uh, there's loads of stuff that isn't in it that should be. Um, but the, the impact, the initial impact that I think that it will have is for at, at least over the next couple of years, we will see an increase in the number of refuge bed spaces uh, and, and routes to escape for people. Um, and local councils will have to now, in, by law, have to care about domestic abuse in a way that they might not have bothered before. Some are really good. Obviously, I was on Birmingham City Council for many years and, you know, that I have no doubt that they care about this and want to provide services even when they're cut to the bone, um, that they care about it. But, that you know, I, I remember the example being that in Theresa May's constituency, when, when Theresa May was the um, prime minister who was pushing for the domestic abuse bill, um, in her constituency, which is covered by Windsor um, Council, they weren't providing a single refuge bed space. And it's just like, yeah, sort your own house out, Teresa, because my council provides it. Um, the, the, there will be places that now have to think about it that didn't have to think about it before in policy terms. And that can only be a good thing. But, you know, we're so far off. I mean, domestic abuse bill doesn't have anything about sexual violence, street harassment, stalking really in it. And so now I just sort of chalk that one up as a win and go on to the next four year battle about the next bill that uh, I'm going to make them have. Did you find it more frustrating? I know this is probably an unfair angle on uh, Theresa May, but being a fellow, being a woman woman and not really pushing the cause. Well, no, because she did, to be fair to her, she did push the cause. It was her bill. She started it. She gets far more praise than she deserves um, in some regards uh, for just starting it. 
what what I would say about Theresa May is that she was so hamstrung as the Prime Minister. When she was the Prime Minister, she managed to push quite a lot forward while she was the Home Secretary, incidentally. Um, but she also cut the police to the bone, which obviously isn't a great idea. Um, but um, she was so hamstrung by Brexit and trying to win battles within her own party that she didn't do any of her domestic agenda any justice while she was the Prime Minister. And she just was a bit weak about, like, you know, she she would say things like, oh, well, you know, this should happen. And it's like, well, I don't know if you know this, but you're the Prime Minister, so make it happen. Like, I, and I, I feel similarly about Boris Johnson, actually. They, they don't seem to know what to do with the power when they have it. They get like, oh, you know, they still talk about things as if they're an idea rather than something that should, that they can make happen. And I find that like, you know, as somebody who may never hold political uh, power and government office as an opposition MP, I just, you know, I, if I was had the power that Theresa May had had, I can think of a hundred things I'd have done in the hundred days what, like, it, it was one of my it was one of my kind of later questions but I kind of ask it now what would what would you do in your oh gosh what would I do well the first thing I would do which they failed to do this week with the Queen's speech and I think it's a bit rich getting like a 95 year old woman to forget about her own people that I would sort out social care I, I would sort out the enormous care crisis in our country that means basically an army of women, often migrant women, are underpaid to look after almost all of us eventually um, and the access to dignified healthcare for adults uh, with disabilities and uh, even children with disabilities, but adults with disabilities and older people. It's just the total missing link and politicians uh, one thing I would do if I was in charge is I, I'd be much more courageous. I think that you, you'd be surprised how little courage there is in the House of Commons. So little. Um, it, it, you know, it's gonna it's gonna cost money to do that to have a whether it's free a social point, care portfolio is just huge. Yeah, anyway, yeah. it's just so massive. Yeah. So uh, you know, that's I, I think that would be my my first most pressing concern. But what I would do around uh, domestic abuse is that I would make it a statutory function of any council because currently statutory functions of local authorities are adult and children's social care and bins. Now we've got refuge accommodation into that statutory, which we fought for. But, you know, I would like women to matter as much as bins. I don't need us to surpass them. One day women will matter as much as policy about cars and then we'll know that we've truly made it. Uh, once again, I don't wish to surpass cars uh, with political power, just would like an equality with them because you will hear many more politicians standing in their local councils, in their in their regional mayoralties and in their in Parliament and the Lords and wherever in Whitehall talking about cars than you will hear them talking about women. Um, and so um, I, I would make um, legislation, uh, I, I would start a proper violence against women and girls bill that properly looked at the root and branch problems of violence against women and girls. I'd also equalise men's paternity to be the same as women's maternity and that every, you didn't have to share it that everybody got the same because you wouldn't overnight you would solve a childcare crisis you, where you'd sort you, out an age-old battle <laughs> you'd <laughs> sort out an age-old battle because actually we decide who's going to look after the children not based on the fact that women are better with children I mean I'm absolutely appalling compared to my husband he loves playing games I am like that I'll put, turn the iPad on um the uh, the the fact of the matter is, though, is that my husband got paid more than me when my children were little, so it made much more sense for me to come out of work. Yeah. And if it's based only on that, women will always lose out and we will always think that caring roles in our society are for women. And that's just absolute rubbish. Um, and also, if you both got like a year off with 90% full pay at the first six weeks and then pay, and but if you both got that, you, you you've got, basically almost three years of free childcare and then you get your free childcare placed yeah Hello. i think i think yeah i think we um we experienced that especially in the in the last year um and because 
it is strange enough. I was having this conversation with one of my friends last night. His childcare costs are higher than his own mortgage. Oh, totally. Um, totally. I had two kids in childcare at once at one time, and it was like £900 a month. Mm. And at the time, my mortgage was £500. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the, paternity, the paternity leave is always... A, uh, well, for me, personally, it, I, I, you know, I was kind of happy I had like for the first two weeks because I was going to work for a break because I just couldn't... I, I was, I think it's the hardest happens, thing in the world, uh, yeah. I think all the pregnancy books and everything that you hear where you go to all the classes is always telling you of like, about the pregnancy and how the baby's going to be and blah, blah. It never tells you anything after. I, I remember... No one tells you anything. That. The first thing I did, I saw my mom, she had a smile. And the other thing was, um, I had to go onto YouTube and, and find out how to how to do a nappy. And that was like a godsend for that YouTube. <laughs> I, did, I didn't have... No, I, I spoke to both my my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law and, my, and my mom. And they were like, they were like, we don't, we don't bloody know. It's been about 30 odd years. Since <laughs> And so, and then I was like, oh, that's a good point, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, no one prepares you. Um, and like you say, I, I went back to work for a rest. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's why that, I went to work. I, I literally went to work for a rest um, because it's so hard. It's the hardest job in the world. And I just think that men should be left to look after their children on their own in the first year of their life, because otherwise men end up being painted as being the people who are not responsible for their bloody children. And it is absolutely, it's not fair on men. It's not fair on women. It messes up our economy. It's just a nightmare. And like, you know, we have to procreate. We need to keep populating the earth or maybe slightly less than we have. Um, the, um, that it just it seems like a no-brainer to me, but there we go. It's, it's, you've, you've obviously got this kind of this this huge kind of workload, and, and you can just see in terms of your thinking space of where you're kind of operating. I know you've kind of moved into like not moved into you've written um, uh, a truth to power where you wrote, had seven um, seven different um, seven rules when there. Mm-hmm. I always remember one. I remember I read. I'll be honest. I read it. Uh, a fair while ago but it was about you had different people in different chapters who represented their yeah. stories to reflect on that which uh, you've had some time to think about it and and i will give you a, your new book a, a big plug um which is going to be everything you really re- really need to know about politics and life as an mp coming out <laughs> 20 22nd of july 20 yeah. uh, 21 so you can i'll put the link for your pre-order on on my on my description um Looking back from when you wrote those seven rules, yeah. do you think they still apply now? Oh, absolutely. More so, if anything, because things are getting really, really bullshitty. Um, really, yeah. really badly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the title. Um, things are getting worse, actually, um, with, um, with regard to people who hold power crystallizing their power and removing the opportunities for ordinary citizens uh, to fight against it, uh, whether that's through our court system changing or um, in the last couple of weeks, the the talk about um, disenfranchising people uh, needing to have ID to vote um, and, and all sorts of, you know, loads of my constituents don't have a passport because they've never left the country. Um, there's no, there's no it's, I was listening to Peston last night. He actually was saying about there's no evidence base of how that actually fraud. Yeah, in no. the UK. Six cases since 2015. Do you know how many cases of rape there have been? They're not making a bill about rape, are they? No. I mean, absolutely crackers. Yeah, well, absolutely crackers um but they're just doing it to disenfranchise people they're not even trying to hide it um and so while that you know really bullshitty things are happening and they are trying to marginalize ordinary citizens power um you know the the sort of messages in that book about how we have to organize to fight against that are becoming even more vital uh, in my view um but yeah no there, there's 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 none that i uh, i think that uh, i would tell people to do differently would you add to it i know that uh, god yeah all remember, the time because yeah, you had i remember in one of your interviews um around the time when you were releasing it you said you initially had five and then you went up to seven and then you yeah. put, put all these kind of ones yeah together. there's there's loads of people that you meet all 
the time and you just think god you're amazing and you're you're fighting to change the world and actually one of the things i didn't really cover in the book apart from uh, i suppose about uh, those who stood up against harvey weinstein um was uh, and that was more about him being powerful rather than the actual incidences i didn't because i i, I suppose not wanting to be pigeonholed and also um speaking to different audiences i didn't write much about those who are the campaigners who've changed the world around um domestic abuse and um and you know i meet every day people who's I mean, just literally with the call that I had before I came onto this call yeah. was with a man called Nick Gazard, whose daughter Holly had was murdered at the age of 20 by a previous boyfriend. And all of these people turn that misery into activism. Um, and he's doing amazing things. Um, and so, you know, and like I say, I meet people and during the pandemic, the amount of people who are ordinarily maligned for one reason or another, whether it's particular communities mm. or who just rolled up their sleeves and just got on with helping people and trying to make things better is, you know, is quite uh, is quite phenomenal the amount of amazing and inspirational examples you could you could come out of um, uh, in the pandemic about people who just didn't give up mm. fighting and also all those people fighting now for their families who died during the pandemic. Yeah. There's going to be a huge amount of activism that comes out of that. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, there is quite a lot of, you know, that you can experience through friends and family and extended friends and family that you know about. There's a there, there's a lot of anger, um, you know, waiting. You could just feel like there's just a boiling point coming through. And yeah. interestingly about kind of the election, the new kind of election um, legislation they're trying to build in, mm. um, where they can call a general election at any point a lot sooner yeah, than yeah. the Prime Minister can, and then kick the inquiry a little bit further down the line. Um, So your new book then, which was around about everything you need to know um, about politics. What, why, why did you feel that you needed to write that book? Was this, was there a, was there a gap in what people's knowledge was? Yeah, there was a massive, massive gap in the reality versus what you watch on either what what gets reported and there's a whole chapter in the book about the difference between like you know the reality of what gets reported and the reality of what actually happens mm. and how the media works with politics you know i'm not here slacking off the media politics is just as much politics and the political class are just as much a cog in that machine um and it it, it plays to the strengths of both parties um, but it's not necessarily realistic. My husband is not a member of a political party. He's a deeply political man, but not, uh, you know, he often says to me, it's not so much that I vote for Labour, I just don't vote for anybody else. Um, that he, you know, he's, uh, when I became a member of parliament, he said to me, you know, people have absolutely no idea what you do all day. Like I had no idea to the, ex- the extent of the work and it's not even like there's loads of work but even like why things are difficult so when you're saying yeah you know the average people in the public they wouldn't understand why the domestic abuse bill took four years there is a huge deficit in it's not understanding as it's not the fault of the people in what gets presented Um, and it's not just by journalism it's also like whenever you see the job that I do presented in drama or in film just you would you would believe that the place is full of amazing orators who make speeches that change everybody's mind every day and that debates are decided because someone made a rousing speech what a load of bollocks literally when you turn up for a debate right and you're going to speak in it everybody knows i could tell you the vote tally before i'd even opened my mouth everybody knows how they're going to vote Nobody ever changes their mind. It is just um, the the, the theatre that you see is totally mythical. And the vast majority of good things that happen in politics happen in the rooms where you can't see it happening. Um, There's private conversations, their relationship building, their campaigning uh, with people in church halls, not in Westminster. Um, And I just don't think that people actually understand 
not just the technical. I mean, I started writing about some of the technical things and I, even I got bored. I had to, yeah. do, at the end, just do a glossary of terms because I'm like that. I am bored of writing about what a bill committee is. So it's not like that. It's not, it's not, um, it's not like a political textbook, although it will, it does have some of that information in it. But it is, it's about the, the life in the place and what it actually means to be a member of parliament and how it actually influences and doesn't influence. The biggest thing I ever learned when I went to Whitehall was I was a, I was a young lad, very uh, <laughs> dashing. Um, we Rakish. Were, yeah, that was it. When um, we went into Whitehall um, and I can't remember the building's name and I remember seeing a few politicians and I was like... Which oh, department was it? It's the, it's, no, no, it is the building which is opposite Big Ben. It was, I don't know what it was called. It, there was a, it, it had like a capsule as you got coming as a, as a scanner. Oh, it might be the home office or... Could be, could be. I, yeah. I, remember, I remember going in or there. Caxton House. I got invited. Mm. And the person who took, the person who took me in, um, and I, 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 he, he was walking alongside me and I just, I just bumped him and, and my old hands were there. <laughs> um, roots came out. I said, oh. I was like, Harry, there's going to be a fight here. And he goes, What? Are you? I said, That geezer there, and that geezer there, they hate each other. And, and like, they're about to square up and talk to each other. And I, and I was like, He was like, goes, yeah, yeah. So he goes, He goes, Ranji, he goes, No, you're wrong. And I said, What do you mean? And I, I turned and I, looked, and I watched them and they shook hands and they sat down and they had, didn't, they had lunch together. And I was like, this is fraud. Yeah. On, oh, totally. On the on, 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 uh, question time, they're slagging each other off. And hang on, there's got other Tory and Labour people sitting around the same table. And they... And there's I a just, whole thing I write in my book no, exactly oh, about this, about exactly about how um, I had some students come in and follow me for the day. And they came into the chamber and me and a member of parliament are proper going at each other. And then I go and meet them in the lobby afterwards and he comes up to me and he's like, oh, Jess, how are the kids? How did Harry get on? Yeah. I could have, and, and that, so you can understand what, you know, what, total, it sounds, that's it what sounds I'm saying, like an elaborate story, but it was proper truth where I was like, yeah. Duncan Smith, man. And I was like, Oh, yeah, it's total. It's not necessarily that it, it's fake. It's just different. Yeah. It, your job is different at different points. Now, if I wasn't friends with people with power, I wouldn't be able to get anything that I want. Um, and one of the ways I get what I want is slagging them off. Another way I get what I want is by being friends with them. It's all ultimately fake because when I say I'm friends with them, I wouldn't like invite them to my house. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. <laughs> None of them have ever been round for a pint or anything. But, but that betrayal that from what I've seen and I just realised, you know, thinking about it right now, it's like how the media portray and oh, yeah. understanding human relationships. Of course, you've got to get to people. Of course, you've like, got to have dialogue. Everybody works, right? The thing is also people put politics and politicians into a different category. Like everybody who works for like, let's say you work for a big company that has more than 250 people or even one that just has 20 some people who work there are twats. Do you know what I mean? Like, and you don't like them, but at work, it would be really unprofessional yeah, yeah. to not like them really publicly. Mm. And you'd get in trouble if you, it's exactly the same. Mm. It's exactly the same. Like, you know, I really don't like some of my colleagues in my own party, but I don't like feel the need to like point it out constantly because mm. like I've got a job to get on with. Yeah. Just going, going to your own party. Uh, the, the last couple, the last week or so has been, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think this is time where you can put the blanket over your head now. Yeah. What? Where I do feel you feel like the scream? Yeah. Where do you think this goes? Because I'm a bit. I feel a little bit like your husband at this point, where you know, just I vote for him just because I can vote for him. But I'm I'm at that point where I just don't feel like even voting. I just don't. No, well, don't do that. Yeah. Um, but, no, this is the truth about it. And I come from a political... No, 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 that my, is... My, my bit. And the it, truth. Because there isn't anybody who kind of represents what's going on. So what are the next steps for the Labour Party? Oh, it's it's got to buck up its ideas, hasn't it? That's the top and bottom of it. It's got to um, look to the future and provide hope. Because what you say is, you know, you just voting for voting's sake is not good enough. And people just won't do it. Um, and 
you know, it's always like the Labour Party has always had a tougher gig. It's a much easier argument to to defend the status quo. To literally, I think people also forget this that the Conservatives to us, it's just like the name of the they literally seek to conserve power where it is. It is to conserve things as they are, and I think that even though it's in their name that gets lost quite a lot. Um, and so the Labour Party has always had a tougher gig in uh, trying to take, you know, push forward for progress. But it's become too timid, in my view, uh, uh, doing that. And, and um, we need to just be like painfully hopeful about where people live and uh, painfully hopeful about the future and just inspire people, actually, because... It's very hard when you're in opposition is the realities because my job is to moan. Yeah. It's my job to moan about what's happening. But you know what? It's really tedious for people to just listen to people moaning about how everything's bad all the time. It's a bit like being Linus in the, in Snoopy, like just like dragging around a blanket being like, oh, everything's so bad. Like, you know, actually you want to be Charlie Brown and you want to be like, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to make this better. Um, and that is, I think, you know, because Boris Johnson is a total fraudster, but he's a cheerful one. But okay, here's 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 my point on this. Uh, the last twelve months have demonstrated stupidity to a, a, a an unbelievable <laughs> level, right? I've had people, even my friends, who are yeah. like, you know, who are who who I will say have done a three sixty and, and witnessed exactly some of the. Uh, some of these decisions and some of the things that have happened mm-hmm. and yet they still it, they still want you still had there was one poll where the where nhs staff or care staff actually were were still going and i gave up at that point i yeah you shouldn't give up but yeah no, no, i can I, see why i i, I was like i just don't <laughs> understand yeah. what it's going to take yeah the thing is is what it's going to take is a better alternative yeah, that's all. It's not that those people think that what has happened is acceptable or that uh, that things are fine. They don't. We, the Labour Party has to present a better alternative. And actually, it's it, it's providing an alternative at the moment, but people don't believe that that would necessarily be better. And so it's a sort of better the devil you know situation. Um, but you're, you you know don't be disheartened by the people thinking that because that way lies madness. Be, I mean, some of them, some people are, are wrong, <laughs> just fundamentally, but the vast majority are not. And blame blame the political class and uh, for that, totally. Like, you know, I will try and say, actually, some of this is on you uh, sometimes, but actually, you know, we've not been a good enough alternative. We don't deserve... I think John Smith, uh, who uh, the anniversary of his death was this week, actually, who... Um, became the leader of the Labour Party before Tony Blair, but he died suddenly. um, And so that's why Tony Blair took over. He said, all I ask is for the privilege to serve, is that you trust us enough to serve. And that is what the Labour Party has got to do. It's got to believe that it it has to ask to serve. We don't deserve it. Yeah. It's not something that we deserve just because we're righter than the we're better and nicer. Which let's face it, we are better and nicer. Uh, I have no doubt about that. But that's not enough. We've got to earn the right to serve yeah. um, and govern, and we haven't yet earned it. So we better you know, crack no, on with that. Yeah, I'm tr- I've tried to be kind of objective as this uh, mm. as I can because I was like, I, I don't find a party for me yet at the moment, and. Uh, mm. And you know, and, and even in in defence, oh, I can't believe I'm saying this. Um, in defence of the Tories, in you know, there was, you know, your uncharted territory. But I just thought that it was an opportunity where politically, with that tribalism didn't need to be there. Where you're making a healthcare matter into a political issue, mm-hmm. I just I just expected better from politicians across the house in order to kind of yeah, and do that. You're right, you're, you're right to have yeah. expected better. It's very, it's a sort of uncharted though, isn't it? Like we, you yeah, know, like who knows how to, to exist in this world? Who knows what would, you know, whether you over-politicise it, under-politicise it, it's a very fine balance. And I think that it, it would have been hard for any opposition politicians, to be honest, but you're absolutely right. It, you know, we all, 
whether it's from the Labour Party, from the government's response to the pandemic, to our hopes that the people would think differently, we all just deserve better. Mm. That's the fundamental. We deserve better. But people have got to expect better and people have forgotten how to expect things to get better. Mm. We've forgotten that things used to progress and actually we've just got used to decline. We've got used to the fact that things are shittier and harder and it's harder for us to get our kids into school. We've all just got used to the fact that we probably can't get a GP appointment. When I was pregnant with my son, you know, I could ring up and have an appointment that day. Like, But now I go, oh, well, I'm not feeling very well, so I'll probably best if, you know, I'll ring, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to get an appointment next week. And I don't think, hang on a minute, that's a terrible decline. I just got used to it. And so we've got to get the country to expect better before we can say, oh, we're the better ones. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And I think at the first part of um, my son actually broke his arm within the second day of lockdown when this all, lockdown, <laughs> lockdown one. And we were taken into a hospital and we were like, oh, my God, this is the last place where you want it. Where you want yeah. But what was interesting was it was the first time where you called the doctors and you were able to get a tele, you know, like a um, yeah, like on the phone. Like a, 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 well, a Zoom. I'm like, hey, mm-hmm. this is this is weird because normally it's two weeks that you yeah to go on. Talking about this digital space, you know, you, you're clearly kind of um, uh, very out there with your opinion. Um, you you make a lot of headlines and. <laughs> You do get it's a burden. You do, yeah, you do get yourself into a bit of hot water when you do say some stuff. Yeah. Do you in do in your book, do you cover the kind of the online pressures that an MP sort of faces? Uh yes, I, I cover some of it. And I did in uh, the first book I wrote, I wrote about how like the horrible trolling specifically of women. Um, but yeah, I do cover um the anxiety that and it's the, it's not even the incidences, it's the relentlessness. It's relentless. It is relentless. And it will chip away at your confidence to speak. Because sometimes you just think, I can't be asked with it today, so I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to speak. And that is, that's the point of it. Mm. That's the whole point, is that people trying to stop you from speaking. Um, but, yeah, I do cover it uh, in the book the relentless life of a politician online. So, you know, you've talked about the role of women. Um, obviously, I'm not trying to give anything away from the, from the book. What was it? What was the site? If you go on your profile and you see mm-hmm. your timeline, it is horrific. It is. It's genuine. It's horrific. And, and I know even putting this out when I, when I do put it. Oh, no, you, you it, expect yeah, terrible shit. So yeah. how, do, how do you, what is a kind of a practical guide for you to try and, deal with that because you've got you're dealing with emotive subjects you're yeah even with even with other colleagues within in the, within within your own mm. you know um you have fractious relationships so to speak so how do you well, do practically i don't see a lot of it anymore i have really really good filters and things so i de- most of it doesn't bre- i mean still some of it breaches so you know it's sort of happening and actually the way i know that people are saying horrible things about me is I'll be trending on Twitter and I don't even, I have no idea why nine mm. times out of 10, uh, but it's usually hate um, or um, people start to defend you. And I follow the people who are defending me. So I see their tweets and I think, Oh, I didn't know somebody was, mm. people were slapping me off. Um, and so that protects me just on a day-to-day basis. Your mental health, it stops the, stops it getting to you. The thing that, I find really troubling is people like yourself, like you said, when you put this out, you're going to get like more so than you will ever get from anyone else. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it will be, it will be bad. Mm. And people say to me, like there's a bakery opened in, in King's East near where I live. And uh, I put that I'd been to the bakery and they put that, Oh, you know, thanks very much. Jess Phillips for coming. And I went in the next day and they were like, Oh, how do you live your life? And I hadn't seen any of it. And they were like, God, we just got horrendous. Like even on Instagram, it was like, God, it's really bad for you. And so then people stop asking me to do things like that for them. And that is, I'm afraid to say, just classic violence against women and girls. The initial tactic to control somebody is to isolate them from people, is to isolate the people around them from being able to be a resource for them. Um, by making those people scared or weary. 
And so that that frightens me much more is that people go, oh, should we have Jess come and talk about this? And then they're like, oh, it's not worth it. Like, like a knitting circle in Yardley Library once put that I was coming that like six old ladies doing knitting for the community and they got horribly trolled. And it's like. You know, so now do the like the schools in my constituency, do the you know, the, the community groups in my constituency just think, oh gosh, just not sure it's worth having her along because of the online shit they'll get. And that pisses me off, not because of the deficit to me. I mean, you know, it's easy my life is easier when I don't have to go through everything. But um I hate that people with less resource and resilience than myself have to deal with the hatred that I get that and my children, my children, that, that it harms me when it harms my children who don't really have the same freedoms as other people's teenagers. They don't really have a a life online uh, because of it. And, and maybe, uh, you know, again, that makes my life considerably easier and less fraught but it's not fair that their liberty is limited. And so practically, the only thing I could do would be, be to be silent more, you know, compliant, but I'm just not willing. I'm just, I, I just have to take it. And I wish that unlike all the stuff that women just have to take or people of colour just have to take to carry on living, like just have to tolerate loads of shit. Um, I, I don't know what the alternative is. Do do you ever think about it's actually having too much of an effect and to walk away from it or no because um, it would kill me to walk away like that's a death mm. um, to give in to such bullying but also I'm much more frightened that of people being left in abusive situations without people being able to speak up for them i'm more frightened of fascism that allows that makes people like me stop than i am of keeping going like you don't eliminate the threat by walking away i wouldn't be any safer fundamentally because my society would be less safer the society that we all have to live in if everybody just gives up and doesn't try and fight for you know, the fact that everybody should be able to vote regardless of whether they own a passport or that women deserve to have a voice or that black people shouldn't have their necks lent on by the police. (laughs) Like, you know, if we give up fighting for that better thing, more black people will have their necks lent on by the police, more women will be silenced and abused, fewer people will go out and vote and the same powerful people. And, And essentially you end up, living with fascism and I, I don't want that um, that's that's more scary I'm not I'm not safer in that environment I might individually be at less risk but I'm not safer do you think that there is a kind of I'm not saying you've done anything wrong in that way but like a road for redemption of kind of like turning it around um from oh, those... what to stop the abuse against me yeah because if you yeah. look at no, absolutely not. It's it, I'm I, I'm big enough to know that it's nothing to do with me anymore. It doesn't matter. It, it literally doesn't matter. I could become Katie Hopkins and like, you know, and, and spout far right bullshit. Mm. And still the people who spout far right bullshit at me would carry on spouting it. It's got absolutely nothing to do with me. I can't I can't change the fact that I'm a woman. I can't change it. And that I speak up for women. I can't, I literally fundamentally, and that's the thing about identity politics Mm. is that people don't understand. There's nothing you can do, Ricky, about Mm. being Asian. There's nothing I can, I mean, you can, you can try, you can (laughs) like, I I, I don't know. You can't do anything about it. You can't. And they fundamentally hate that. The fundamental. So I can't, I can't change that. I'm a woman. So, I mean, it just, there's nothing we can do about it. And so there's, there is no redemption from my womanhood. There's no redemption from your Asian-ness. There's no redemption from people's gayness. You know, there is oh, just, we're just stuck with it. So I'm just stuck with it. Yeah. I'm, I'm just kind of like thinking in what you said of like, I just don't think a lot of people that I know and include myself would, would, 
would be able to kind of handle that. I just don't know how you... How You'd you be surprised how much you can tolerate when you when it builds up. You just... It's like people think that they wouldn't be able to live with an abusive person and because that's because we, you don't realise that it doesn't go from naught to 60 overnight. You, you're trained to tolerate it over a long period of time. Um, so I, I, I've just got... And also, there's just so much positive and brilliant about my life since I became a politician. So many doors open. Like, you know, like, I, I nobody would have cared whether I've written a book or not, whether, mm. you know, or asked me to write a book. Like, no, my kids get to, like, experience things that I couldn't imagine when I was a kid growing up in Birmingham. Like, just that there is so much positive I am I am essentially freer than I've ever been uh, in any other job I make my job what it is and it's up to me to decide what I want to do and sometimes that ends me in trouble but that's all it's all on me I'm not wearing somebody else's shit it's all on me and that is a freedom I wouldn't I I would struggle to give up now I would struggle to go back to being like employed or um so, you know, there's uh, there's a huge amount of freedom. And uh, unlike some of my conservative colleagues who often say, oh, you know, it's a calling and I had to give it, I had to slash my wages uh, to become a member of parliament. Like, you know, it's a pretty well paid job. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm freer in lots of, in lots and lots of regards in a way than it has made my life and the life of my children better in much more than it has made it hard. So coming to the kind of final segment of this, um, it is called the bandwagon and it is a play on my surname. And there is um, an opportunity for you to, is there a bandwagon that you want to jump on or you want to, you got particular feelings about? Uh, I, uh, people, one of the things funnily enough that people accuse me of is, oh, she's jumping on this bandwagon all the time. That is like one of the, the main sort of slurs that you get. Well, you got a chance now. Yeah, she, people are like, oh, she's jumping on the rape bandwagon. I'm like, it's a really shitty bandwagon. Why would anybody want <laughs> Why would anybody want to jump on this? Yeah. Oh, you know, oh, the women's bandwagon. It's just like, try being a woman. It's rubbish. Um, but uh, what bandwagon? I mean, there's so many things that I um, think, oh, gosh, I need to get on to knowing more about all of these things, like anything to do with tech. <laughs> uh, maybe I need to get a, a podcast. Like, it's a bandwagon I should, you I should, should jump you on. Should, I, I mean, it'll be... You'll get a lot of attention, which is yeah, good. exactly. And, so. and you, may, you may spare up some of your time from when uh, you know doing some of your books. Yeah, I would encourage. I would encourage it. Yeah, so maybe that's a bandwagon I need to jump on. Um, lo loads of politicians like they have some really quite lucrative bandwagons, and their friends all seem to be getting contracts uh from their power so maybe my friends who are like builders and midwives maybe they'd like to jump on that particular bandwagon of uh i'll just start giving out like the local landlord of my pub a massive 25 million pound ppe contract that that seems like a pretty good bandwagon to be on which I, I, alas i seem to have not managed to jump on as it passed me by um so yeah there's quite a lot of uh but but the podcast bandwagon that's the one i'm gonna jump yeah, on you there. Should, you should definitely do it and if ever you, um you need me to jump on that you just let me know <laughs> uh okay all right okay that's fair enough so kind of like the um last question really in terms of what's yeah. the next six, six to twelve months gonna look like for you oh god i mean a week is a long time in politics i believe is the uh saying I think that the next six to 12 months is going to look like me putting my shoulder very, very, very much to the wheel of trying to get the Labour Party to work as a team in a time where it got taken over when we couldn't be together and we haven't been in the same room as each other, trying to help basically be a foot soldier in trying to push the Labour Party to be a better alternative, um, but also to not let the government off the hook of giving women one bill in a generation. So I'll be seeking and working on working up loads more law changes for 
violence against women and girls as always and no doubt i'll write another book because mm. and start a podcast and yeah. I, I was about to say i like i don't know have more children but that's definitely not going to happen <laughs> definitely never again maybe i'll give some attention to the the ones i've got um <laughs> so that, that would be nice um oh he's he doesn't need attention. He's too self-sufficient to need my attention. He's sort of delighted that, you know, when I, I think he's found the last year really hard because um, when we were first together, he worked uh, on a night shift, four nights on, four nights stuff. So we never spent more than four nights together. Mm. Uh, and then obviously he gave up night shifts when I went to parliament where I'm there for three nights back here for four nights. And uh, I think, being together constantly <laughs> for a solid year we used to struggle with a bank holiday weekend okay, yeah so so the last year must have been like uh, it's just like you know prison. we have literally nothing to say to each other anymore it's like we've covered we've covered every topic we're now having to start new hobbies to find new conversation points <laughs> <laughs> fair enough yeah yeah okay all the um yeah, I'll try and pick that myself. And, uh, <laughs> I love my husband more than anyone on earth. But when you can't go out and do anything, it's literally like, what are we going to watch on television tonight? Yeah. Well, you did your house refurb as well, didn't you? I did do that. Well, that's why we had something to talk about. Yeah. That, that was like endless decisions about the dimensions of shower trays. That 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 kept us going for a solid week, that one decision. Light fascias. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it gave us absolutely loads to talk about. Um that's what I think people do. That's what I think mar- makes marriage work is that you get married, get a new job, have a baby, do up the house, move house, have a baby, get a new job. <laughs> it's like you have to keep having interesting things happening in your life. It's like to a, discuss. That's like a crap version of the circle of life, isn't it? The line yeah. Can... I, I, maybe I'll write a book about how to have a happy marriage because yeah. I have one of the happiest marriages. I and that's because we don't expect to have that much in common. My friend Helen once said, "Oh, what do you have in common?" And the thing we came up with is that we both like noodles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Noodles. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Just, I really thank you for taking the time out to to uh, join me on here and have a good conversation. So, whenever you do any of your books or when you launch your podca- a podcast, let me know, and oh, well. um, I'll, I'll give it a good plug in that. But thanks for today. No props. Lovely to see you. Later. Ta-da. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.